0: Gay, and I'm your host, Geraldo Rivera. You're tuned in to episode 21 of Geraldo's Edge Game, season three, episode one. This season... I'm going to get into the real inner workings of what makes me tick. I'm gonna show you the real me, okay? No more irony, no performance, just true life. I spent the first twenty episodes of this dicking around. I I was very conscious of what I said. I was very acutely aware and I and really saying things as if I was hoping no one would listen to it. I was saying things without real intent. And it was hard to be genuine. It was hard to be real. And I know that's what you come here for. That's what you listen to me for, is for real, genuine, authentic, meaningful connection. We both crave intimacy. We both want to feel connected to someone or something. And I get that. The first 20 episodes were practice. And I think they should be ignored. I'll let you decide if they're real or not, but I'll say here that um, you can disregard them moving forward. I'm finally ready to show the world how much of a fucking asshole I really am. And I prepared a little something. I was recently reminded of why I've spent the last decade of my life isolating and avoiding. I started being more of an asshole to people years ago when I decided it was finally time to kill myself. When I moved to San Diego, I decided that if I pushed people away enough, both physically and emotionally, I would have nothing left to distract me or hold me back. If I pushed away people who loved me enough, it would soften their grieving and help absolve some of the guilt that pops up in my mind every time I think of blowing my brains out. I moved out here as an act of desperation and I thought maybe I'd stop and die along the way. I thought Paris, Texas would have been a good place to die and I still do. But instead I was distracted by the novelty momentarily. I got confused and thought there was some bigger reason or purpose for moving out here. But truly at the core, it was because I wanted to die quietly and alone. I don't have energy or patience for people to care or to empathize or understand. I'm more cynical and jaded than I thought I would be at this age. And I can only imagine how much worse I could get. It's hard not. It's hard to not be selfish. It's hard to not be a selfish person when you put most of your time and energy into maintaining, into not jumping off a cliff. And at that point, when you're so selfish, when you're just. Living for yourself. You're just a waste of resources. You take up space that someone else who wants to live could gladly appreciate readily. You contribute nothing but a sense of dread in the people closest to you, that one day you'll just disappear. I think nobody in my life would be surprised if I disappeared someday, and to me, that's entirely relieving. It makes my life a lot easier and hopefully will make my death a lot easier as well. I live a life dedicated entirely to myself, and to me, that is truly a waste. I'd rather die now while I'm a relatively neutral presence, a distant, estranged friend, acquaintance, entity. If I drag this out much longer, I believe my life will become a net negative for those around me and for society as a whole. The thought of death no longer makes me sad, and that's how I know I'm ready. Before I'd go, I'd like to read a short excerpt from a book that means a lot to me, and I hope provides some semblance of understanding or meaning to you as well. I liken what I do sometimes to a life game, an adventure in absurdity, an adult fairy tale in which I engage people emotionally and intellectually. I like to think people will learn something from my hijinks, that they will become a little more cautious, because the next time around, their hoaxer might truly be diabolical and rob them of things far more important and meaningful. Alan Abel, The Confessions of a Hoaxer, Chapter 10. There now awaited the imprimatur of legacy and shorthand. He would soon become a name of a character and a thing. And thus, in all aftermath, he would most often be fuzzily remembered as having been a name of a character in a thing the name would be give or take a letter exactly that of a potato pancake the character would be but his but not his any longer the thing would live on in flickers of recollection as something that had been quite good a television series that most people had meant to watch more than they did and this was to be his legacy in shorthand, that which in years to come would inform occasional blank expressions that greeted mention of his name. Oh, him, of course. He would know this sooner than later, and it was um fine and also discouraging because of all else that he was and that he would do. He sensed fear. He sensed slash feared the imminent cultural shackling of it from the get-go. So he wavered at the idea of committing himself to the enterprise. Can't we just put foreign man in a trunk for a while, like howdy? George, however, explained that it would be foolish not to take advantage of such a lofty opportunity. This was going to be a very classy show without doubt. These were Mary Tyler Moore guys, for God's sake and the money he would earn would only afford him freedom to pursue other dreams. So negotiations between Ed Weinberger and Shapiro took wing shortly after the comedy store encounter. The producers were to begin writing their first episode in April, and they had already decided that the series would be called Taxi, inspired by a September 1975 New York Magazine article Night Shifting for the Hip Fleet by Mark Jacobson about an eccentric cab company in Greenwich Village. And among first priorities was to sign Andy to the cast. Andy was reluctant to do the series, Weinberger said. I mean, he wanted to do it, but I didn't want to work every week. But he didn't want to work every week he had these other things he wanted to do. Concessions were made from the start and would continue to be made over the next five years. But first, they would have to deal with the initial 13 episodes ordered by the network. He would agree to appear in no more than eight of them, and in only one of those as a featured player. He would perform in the rest as a background novelty who blithered betwixt plot points involving the other seven principal cast members. But there would be one more demand. It was the deal-breaker, as far as Andy was concerned. Without this, he wanted nothing to do with the show. Weinberger took Shapira's call and listened. George said that Andy now insisted that in at least two of the five shows that he didn't work on, we would have to hire the acting services of Tony Clifton. If we wanted foreign man, we had to take Clifton. I laughed. George laughed. We took Clifton. I mean, what the hell? One week after town hall, here at last was British man on the live Saturday night broadcast, bedecked in a fet plumage, black waistcoat and tie, and nails and tails and peach-ruffled shirt pacing behind host Art Garfunkel, who introduced Andy Kaufman. (sighs) British man then bent over his phonograph and tested the needle on the record of marching music which began to play. But he removed the needle and in his thin and brisk accent greeted the audience, which he complimented on the many bright, smiling, happy faces therein and starchily proceeded to inform. They told me that since there were only about 20 or 25 minutes left in the show tonight, since I've been on several times before, they said that they trust me. The producers and the people who run the show said they trust me very much and that they would let me do anything I want and I could have the rest of the time if it takes that long. So I was wondering what to do. What could I do to fill up this 20, 25 minutes? Could I sing a song, do a dance? Then I thought, well, you know, before I've been on the show and I've done characters like the little foreign man, the foreign immigrant who goes, thank you very much. I am very happy to be here, you know? And then I've done this American character Hi, I'm Andy, and hello, how are you? Oh, the cow goes moo. But I thought, instead of doing that, why don't I just come out and be straight with you and be myself? Then I thought, well, what should I do? What should I do? I was at a loss. And so I saw this book, and it reminded me of when I was in school when this literature teacher gave it to me to read, said it was the greatest American novel ever written. I take issue with that. I don't believe that it is. But what I'd like to do tonight is to read it to you, and then perhaps you could point out some of the subtleties that I might have missed, in case if we have time to follow for discussion. It's called The Great Gatsby, by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and here it is. Chapter one. Audience coughing spasms began at outset of fourth sentence. Derision gained in surliness by last word on page, which visibly perturbed BM. Now look, let's keep it down, please, because we have a long way to go, and I am pressed for time. Then by top of second page, Groans of exquisite agony tore through studio. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempt. Now look, if I hear one more word, I'm going to close the book and forget about the whole thing. And they cheered. And BM walked off, then walked back, resumed reading as insurrection-mounted. To which he responded in lecture, I think what we need nowadays is more discipline. You know, when I was your age, I used to have to walk seven miles to school. Spare the rod and spoil the child is what I say. Good half round in the woodshed would do some of you very good. Lorne Michaels now approached and whispered into his ear and retreated. What? well, I have been asked to leave, ladies and gentlemen, and I resent it. And his indignation rose, and he indicated that, after the reading, he had planned to reward them by playing a music record, which the audience seemed to want now. So he said that he would play it, after he had finished reading. And he reopened the book, and was met with screams and after further futile negotiation, he stalked over to the phonograph and set down the needle and waited through protracted hisses and skips until the sound of his voice issued forth. Only Gatsby, who gives his name to this book, was exempt. And he stood beside the phonograph and prissily gloated. <sighs> These were now heady times, headier than ever, flush with the empowerment of conquest after conquest, such as they were, which were uniquely compliant to his vision, such as it was. He was gotten was what he was. the right people understood him or believed they understood him or at least pretended to so as to impress their sophistication upon others he kept hearing that word genius and also brilliant and George would hug him hard, and Bob would hug him hard, and everyone would rather was rather giddy, and he knew there was nothing that he could not do. Drained the Atlantic Ocean, but of course, one day for certain, it was something he had always wanted to oversee. Or play Carnegie Hall? Um, yes. Maybe George could make some calls. They were all likening him to these other people named... Pirandello and Ernie Kovacs. I never saw Ernie Kovacs, but I understand that's a compliment. And Ionesco and something called Dada. People keep mentioning that name to me. I've been told my work is Dada and I don't want to know what that is. And meanwhile, George kept saying the word exciting and everything truly was exciting and the ice cream was always cold and the chocolate was always thick and the roller coasters were always fast and the women were, well. He wrestled one on his last birthday at the surprise party that little Wendy threw at his apartment. He had moved to La Cienega Towers, a high rise just below sunset, where he rode the elevators with Elliot Gould and Kathy Uppman, had become his mostly platonic roommate-slash-housekeeper, and Wendy had become his personal assistant, whose duties included ordering subscriptions to every female wrestling magazine in existence, plus all other professional wrestling publications. Bob, meanwhile, had arranged the birthday wrestling match because it was something Andy had always wanted to do. Zamuda had seen his private collection of 8mm films featuring bikini-clad women tangling with one another, the sheer sexual electricity of which, oh, so it was that Gail Slob- Slobodkin late of Has Been Corner and her singer friend Marilyn Rubin, on whom Andy nursed a deep crush, were called upon to wrestle each other in swimwear at the January party, and he would then wrestle the victor, who was Marilyn, and it was all very playful except that he was very, very excited by all the rubbing between his body and hers, and she stayed after the others went home that night, and then he wrestled her soon thereafter on stage at an improv event in front of people like Betty Midler and Raquel Welch and others who were appalled, none more than Marilyn herself, who lost just barely. A lot of people thought it was self indulgent and terrible and everything, he said, but I didn't care. It was a fantasy come true. Which was to say, he believed that with all new hubris came entitlement, and most of all, he believed that he was entitled to disregard. So he would now aim to seize any opportunity to disregard structure, expectation, rules. It would be a part of his art, the disregarding, and it would be calculated always, never done in slipshod fashion, never executed without purpose or means to an end, Uh, and he would make all effort to become known for it, since if he was known for it, then George would have less mess to clean up afterwards. George could just shrug and say, well, that's Andy. And that would always be enough. And Zamuda had this credo that he kept imposing Kaufman, he would urge. The system was made to bend. The system was made to bend. The system was made to bend. And Andy knew that anyway, because he had been bending it all along, but he and Bob together expanded his playground exponentially, removed any boundaries that might forestall whatever delicious theater-of-life escapades they elected to hatch. They would scheme always now, the two of them. Nothing much would remain very extremely sacred. Of this renegade partnership, not that it was ever to be an equal one, George had patiently observed, their mental age is somewhere between 12 and 15. When they are really sophisticated, they reach the 15-year-old level. And this was evident once they left New York, and after the Saturday night extrapolations of British man and flew to Columbus, Ohio, where Bert DeBrow was producing a local teen talk show called Bananas, with a Z, on which Bob was introduced as Dr. Robert Zamuda, filibustering author of a new book on the little-known signs of psychogenesis, psychogenesis, whose stiff windbaggery was interrupted by Andy's arrival in the studio, which effectively quashed any wavering interest in Dr. Zamuda, who became increasingly ruffled and eventually lunged for Andy, don't you touch me, I think that you are the phony, you are not a doctor, that man is not a doctor, or a nurse and the teens in the audience sat mystified, and the host was wholly bewildered, and Dr. Zamuda was noisily ejected while Andy played congas, and the show ended. After which, Andy and Bob were beside themselves. DeBrow, meanwhile, would answer to management. In fun, only fooling, no really... He was this other one for Mike Douglas in Philadelphia. A few days later, he came out and sang the song Confidence, which Elvis had sung in the film Clambake, but he sang it as himself and clumsily strummed along on his guitar with a C and an O and an N and an F and an I and a D and an E N C E. Put them all together and what have you got? And then he led the audience in The Cow Goes Moo. But upon sitting down at the panel with Mike and Carol Channing and Robert Goulet, again, his articulation grew huskily middle European with a decided arrogance. And suddenly he was a new self altogether who spoke of being influenced by a children's television host called Captain Jack. And I thought, this is a good man for me to do. All right. All right. I will develop this man, this character, and so I call it my American character, Andy. This is not something that I want to talk about, really, because I want people to think that it's my real voice. But because the show is interested in truth, I am talking this way. But I hope that people will just forget it, you know? And so a program of blithe chatter fell into a stony abyss of awkwardness. Brows furrowed as he had hoped. Finally, if tentatively, Douglas asked, where are you from, Andy? What difference does it make where a man is from? I have traveled. I was raised throughout Europe, Africa, and different countries, but what difference does it make? And the point of it all was to demonstrate that this was the real foreign man, that by merely pitching his voice into higher nasal range, he could instill this haughty eurolocution. With gentle innocence, which is what people most enjoyed, which had brought him success in show business, even though he was now confessing to being an unlikable fraud. Before he resumed his American character and moved to a set of symbols on which he accompanied his own otherwise a cappella, his own otherwise A cappella rendition. Is a cappella one or two words? It's separated as a cappella, a cappella, a cappella rendition of You'll Never Walk Alone from Carousel. I don't know how to read. Received with muted shock. He was forced to allow Mike Douglas to disrupt his excellent flight of new disregard. Douglas, in an actual sincerity, wished to pass along information that Andy had never heard before, and it was perhaps the most important information that he had ever heard in any of his lives. I wanted to tell Andy something that has nothing to do with comedy or anything, said Douglas. I was recently with a man named Jerry Weintraub, who handles, among others, John Denver, Neil Diamond, Bob Dylan, Frank Sinatra. He also booked Elvis Presley on all of his engagements before he passed away. And he told me that Elvis told him that of all the people who did impressions of him, of Elvis, he enjoyed you the most. And I thought you would like to know that. Oh. And he was in the midst of being an asshole when he heard this. And he didn't break asshole character even as he heard this. And he seemed to be completely unaffected by hearing this. (sighs) Even though the audience applauded most rousingly. They were proud of him. And so did Carol Channing and Goulet. But he could only momentarily glaze in a fashion that no one but his intimates would recognize as a chink Approximating humanness, humility, happiness. As a chink. Approximating humanness, humility, happiness. Before telling everyone that it would be better if they forgot that he was this new self. And believed that he was really his American self. Because the song would work better if they forgot the other. Please believe, he said, and it was very extremely poetic that he sang you'll never walk alone at that particular moment, since the lyrics were about triumphantly walking through the storm and holding your head up high and not being afraid of the dark, etc., which was all very metaphorical, although this would not occur to him because that sort of thing never really did. Well, he certainly knew that Elvis had recorded the song 11 years earlier, and it was released as a single on Easter of 1968. And it didn't do very well, but it sounded really inspiring when sung only with battering cymbal accompaniment the way he was doing it now. Also, he tried to sing it with soaring gospel inflections just the way Elvis had. It began in earnest on April Fool's night in Tucson, Arizona, whereupon they had discussed the possibility of trying this before. But now because they were on the road and it would offer new means to interact with women they decided that the time was right. He wanted to rub against the body on stage, he told Bob. About an hour into the act the gauntlet was thrown. We decided to offer $500. Make it really big so as to get the women up there, he said. He had <laughs> he had adopted Clifton's appraisal of the feminine species to go to them toward entwine <laughs> Entwining with his body they were, he hectored, only good for raising the babies and washing the carrots and peeling the potatoes and such. He would wear white long johns with black shorts pulled over them, since bob told him he should never do it bare chested, what with the acne on his back, which bob said was disgusting. Anyway, he picked one. They hated him, the ones who had come on stage for the money and the challenge, and he pinned her certainly. But while they were rubbing, he told her to come backstage after the show, and it would always work this way. (sighs) Only one of the characters would be a career cab driver, and the others would be different things, but they drove cabs to make ends meet. There would be a boxer and an actor and a transplanted country bumpkin and an art gallery receptionist, the only female, and then there would be the dispatcher who was a little rat. Also, there would be the mechanic who always wore coveralls and spoke in his own indiscernible language and was relentlessly innocent and adorable. He purified himself in every way. The diet, of course, was full of mulches and grains and weeds and sprouts and broths and curds and juices and herbs all of which certainly balanced and purged the chunks and mounds and nuggets and bowls of chocolate. He called it chocolate, and his eyes would dance at the sight or mention of it. He washed his hands rather obsessively too. The more famous he became, the more people wanted to shake hands with him. He was never very good at this, kind of a limp grasp And he would never touch food if someone had touched his hands. So sometimes in restaurants where people would come over to greet him repeatedly, he would have to keep getting up from the table and going to the bathroom to rewash his hands before he could eat again. And always in restaurants, he dipped his utensils in his glass of water and rubbed them vigorously with his napkin before deigning to eat with them. He tried to will his bowel movements never long after eating. He sat and waited for results no matter the duration of digestion. People got annoyed about this. He took lots of vitamins before meals, like mommy taught him. And he would line up the pills in careful, meticulous rows, then consume them in special order. He did this with almonds and cashews as well, lined them up ten at a time, and ate them accordingly. Nuts were sort of sacred. He liked order, just like Daddy did. Really. He liked things to be exactly where they were supposed to be. He would scream if somebody moved his pen. He used a different toothbrush for every day of the week, except Sunday. He did not like anyone to come into contact with his beddings, unless the person was unclothed. The female person, of course, because clothes carry contaminants. He said this, but his motives were clear enough. Sex was a problem because he loved it with an ardor unmatched. He and Bob sniffed for it on the road like desperate bloodhounds, but he felt that it darkened his spirit and tainted his innocence. To combat the creeping impurity of his powerful urges, he sometimes sent foreign man to prostitutes in West Hollywood. There is the storefront set up on Santa Monica Boulevard near Crescent Heights that he knew well. He once even had little Wendy drive him there and go in with him while foreign man negotiated. This was a very pure idea, he thought. Then she waited to drive him home afterwards and Wendy would remember that the prostitute was not amused in the least by foreign man and he merged worried for his enlightened soul in any case we <laughs> went back to his apartment and he lit incense and did a little tm puja ceremony to cleanse his spiritual self anyway he had scheduled to go on a long age of enlightenment governor training course with Dick Van Dyke, 1976. California from April through much of June and there he would rekindle his purity and become an actual governor in the TM hierarchy and he would learn yogic flying which was kind of like levitating but more like hopping while seated in lotus position and it created the most positive energy waves imaginable and he needed to be positive since he was going to begin work on his television series immediately after the 4th of July and he was not at all thrilled about it From the start, he kept his distance. He showed up at Paramount on the 5th of July for the first read-through of the first script of the first episode. And the actors, they were a lively, collegial bunch, making with the nervous, well-meaning, jokey, back-slapping camaraderie of nascent team Endeavor. Couldn't get a fix on him. They pumped him fishy palm and searched in vain for connective light in his eyes and gathered the full spectrum of his social grace, um, oh, hi, fine, very good, thank you, which was further strained by the fact that he wore his headphones that first day and seemed to be listening to something on a portable tape machine. Danny DeVito, who was cast in the role of the Napoleonic Napoleonic, Napoleonic cab dispatcher, Louis De Palma, was the only one who ventured to ask what he was listening to. And Andy passed him the headphones and DeVito heard tribal chanting. Foreign man had been named Latka Gravas by the consortium of Brooks Weinberger Daniels Davis because they, as producers slash creators, were, thought it would be funny, and yet not unbelievable. And so it was, and he accepted this without any greater qualm than the overriding qualm of having taken this job to begin with. George said he would get $10,000 for every episode in which he 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 deigned to appear, and the money would increase if the series continued. Laka, meanwhile, was conceived to be something akin to the grease monkey mascot of the Sunshine Cab Company garage, the concrete crucible of taxi from which all witty 22-minute morality plays sprung forth. His specific heritage would remain unidentified. He would refer to his country frequently without giving its name or locus. He would appear in the first episode, like father, like daughter, at the top of the second act, trundling down the garage staircase to ask Alex Rieger, the patriarchal career cabbie played by Jude Hirsch, Judd Hirsch, for help with English lessons, and his arrival was scripted in such a way as to merely navigate him. Lotka Gravis enters. He is dressed in coveralls with a monkey wrench sticking out of his back pocket. He is sweet and innocent looking. He goes to Alex. We hear Louis's voice. Louis. Latka, where are you going? Don't hang around the drivers. I need you to fix a cab on the third level. Latka turns. In his own language, which sounds like a cross between Turkish, Latvian, and gibberish, he says something that means roughly, Let a guy have a minute, will ya? And thus was established the foreignness and the cuteness and the spunk, whereupon Laka moved to Alex, who was using the payphone, and Alex said it was not a good time to work on the English lessons. Laka starts to walk away dejected. Dejected isn't the word. He has taken vulnerable too far. Then Alex reconsidered, and Laka eagerly read aloud from his phrase book, Lesson 12. Thank you, Chambermaid, for your excellent service. I am glad I don't require medical assistance. And then he shuffled to a bench to sit beside new driver, Elaine Nardo, on whose shoulder he innocently rested his head. This gives her pause, but he is so sweet. Then, like a locksmith, picking a lock, he begins slowly pulling the zipper of her blouse down. And she, shocked, pushed him away and said, he said, "'No bed?' And she firmly replied, "'No bed.' And this would be the debut of Latka Gravas as seen in the series premiere Tuesday, September 12th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time over the ABC television network, which still had no interest in broadcasting as special. And now here he was again, not only as foreign man, but as foreign man reborn, according to the whim of others who had relieved him of the character's creative custody and who would dictate the character's inner life and motivation and destiny. Foreign Man was no longer his, but theirs. It was part of the package. Resigned to this reality, he did what was required of him as best as he could. For the meanwhile, as he could from the what the fuck, dude, as he could from the remove he required himself to maintain. The producers, meanwhile, respectfully gave him leeway. The other actors quickly began to resent. He came late for rehearsals when he elected to come to rehearsals which he would soon stop doing altogether because he didn't need rehearsals because he had a photogenic, a photographic memory and always knew his lines cold. When present, he regularly disappeared to meditate for long stretches, often in his car, where production assistants would be sent to retrieve him. Everyone was made to wait for him and then he would wander back to rejoin the enterprise and pretend not to notice all the glowering. I defended him strong to the cast, said Jim Brooks but the cast did not like the way he monkeyed with them. They were really furious. It would bubble up. I remember defending him by always saying, but he's an artist. And they would respond, an artist doesn't piss on other artists. Jeff Conway, who played the role of struggling actor Bobby Wheeler, came to openly hate his guts. I don't see the big deal about this guy. The producers were obviously crazy about him. I thought he was like a Jose Jimenez ripoff. Tony Danza who played boxer Tony Banta had the same initial misgivings I always like to say that he wouldn't have lasted long in my neighborhood he was so bizarre I wanted to know who this guy was and he would give you nothing sometimes he wouldn't even acknowledge <laughs> he wouldn't even acknowledge you to your face he'd look right through you Danza once greeted one of his late arrivals by accosting him with a fire extinguisher. I'd figured I'd shoot him, get him aggravated, and maybe we could have it out, you know? I could say, why don't you just join in with us here? so I take the fire extinguisher and start spraying him near the dressing rooms and he just stands there he doesn't say a word and I continue to shoot and just empty the thing and now I'm the maddest guy in the world because he never even reacts I didn't get any reaction—it drove me nuts. Jim Brooks had to take me aside later and tell me, "Hey, Tony, no soaking the actors." He kept his walls erect always. On Friday nights, when the shows would be filmed before a live audience in bleachers, he sealed himself inside of Laka, interacted with cast and crew only as Laka, took notes from the producers and from the director James Burroughs, and afterwards told them, "Thank you, Betty, much." Mary Lou Henner would recall if someone in the audience asked him to do Elvis Presley, he'd do Latka doing Elvis Presley. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, and he was nowhere to be found. Amid the new sitcom lifestyle, he started work late that summer as a part-time busboy at the Posh Bagel on Santa Monica Boulevard. Oh my god. He reported for duty only on Monday nights at 11, whereupon he donned his apron and began pouring coffee and carting trays until closing. He had not bussed tables since his employment at Chop Meat Charlie's in Great Neck when he was 16, but he had been eager to return to that sort of solid, finite labor. It was, he believed, part of his roots. Plus, he could do funny things in the course of a shift, not to be funny... What the? F- who the fuck writes like this? He could do funny things in the course of a shift, not to be funny, no really. The posh bagel hired him on the recommendation of this girl Beverly Chelakian, who was a part-time hostess there and whom he had met five years earlier in New York when she was a Revlon model. Before she moved to Los Angeles to become an actress and got cast as one of the incidental high school kids on Welcome Back, Cotter. And that was when she began a kind of tortured and volatile affair with Andy, whom she deeply loved. Sometimes, per him, a bit too deeply. He did not want the games of love, just the fruit, and she played the games, which made him yell a lot. And she would call him a big baby and storm off and then they would mend and play it until it happened again, and again, and again, but she was very beautiful, and he cannot, he cannot stop himself from wanting to be with her, even though his brother Michael had now come to Los Angeles for a long visit, and he tried to urge Michael to date her in his stead, <laughs> but that never quite took, and he did love her in his way, but that did not stop him from lusting in every other direction, like when he flirted endlessly with the pretty hush bagel customer and beverly interrupted them and said something to ruin his chances and as beverly would remember andy went berserk and screamed how could you do that to me i could have gotten laid (laughs) (laughs) I mean, can you believe that? He had never talked to me like that before. So I ran to the back of the deli and locked myself in a room while he kept screaming. Then we saw him drive off in a rage, swerving and screeching like a madman. And of course they mended again, for a while again, since she wanted to marry him and all. Anyway, he was like that. He was what he liked to call an overzealous busboy, and that he liked to remove people's foods before they finished eating it and often before they had even touched it. (laughs) 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 They they were. (laughs) 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 Man. Um. They would get very upset, said Beverly. They would want the food replaced. Many many times I'd have to say to him, okay, you've done enough tonight. You can leave now. And Greg Sutton would remember dropping by to say hello on a night when the actor Richard Gere would skeeted, was skeeted in a back booth with a beautiful woman and Andy would, wouldn't leave them alone. He would kept coming in by and asking, would you like more coffee over and over and over again? Gear said, quit bugging me, but Andy always (laughs) comes over anyway and starts pouring the coffee while looking away like somebody had called him. And (laughs) (laughs) And the coffee starts overflowing all over the table, and Richard Gear is flipping out in his Armani suit. If he knows who Andy is, he doesn't care at this point. He's screaming, what are you doing, you stupid idiot? And Andy saying, oh gosh, I'm sorry, and trying to clean up, but only making it worse, pushing the coffee all over them. <laughs> it was hilarious. And then and then some reporters found, found out he was <laughs> found out he was working as a busboy. And he would tell them that he did it because it keeps me in touch with people. Because no matter how famous I may become from show business. I always hoped that I could keep my head out of the clouds and remain, you know, just a regular human being. I'm just a human being. And working as a busboy reminds me of this. August ended. And little Wendy quit because she was sick of being little, of being diminutive in his eyes, thus patronized, and of having to go along with his weird whims at weird hours and withstand his erratic cruelties. So they had this big eruption in front of a restaurant in Chinatown, and they shoved each other back and forth, and she told him to go fuck himself in a new voice that wasn't at all little, and he told her the same thing, and she stomped away. Such adrenaline, he felt. He wondered why he liked confrontation so much. So he sought a new assistant and his old TM friend, Linda Mitchell, the classical guitarist in whose parents' guest house he had stayed when he came to Los Angeles and tried to get Foreign Man onto the dating game. And as it turned out right now, more than five years later, he was actually on his way over to do the dating game as Foreign Man at last. So he called Linda and told her to meet him in Beverly there. He would be... Baji Kimran, which was the previously unspoken name he had created for Foreign Man four years earlier, who was Bachelor number 3, and some people in the audience recognized him and screamed for him to do Elvis, but he gave no acknowledgement because the Bachelorette, whose name was Patrice Burke, who would be asking the questions of the three potential mystery dates, had no clue as to who he was not that she saw him because she would ask her questions from behind a separating wall with host jim lang presiding and she asked him this first question bachelor number three it's the holiday season and i'm santa you're on my lap little boy take it away and he said "Vat? wait a minute wait i don't know what she looked like could i see what she looked like and lang told him no that was part of the game but I don't know who she is then he said she didn't sound like Santa Claus (laughs) (laughs) but but finally said that he would ask her for eh, a television and eh, a record player and food anyway she finally chose bachelor number one over the protest of Baji Kimran You mean I did not win? No, I won, I won. I answered all the questions the right way. No, I do not lose. And he came out to meet her with tears in his eyes, and in truth he was very angry about losing, and Beverly was angry that he was angry, and Linda would start work within the week. New York Magazine, meanwhile, had sent writer Janet Coleman out to do a major profile of him, that would be published the week Taxi premiered. And this article would be entitled, Don't Laugh at Andy Kaufman. So we invited Coleman up to the Lasinaga Towers and Kathy Upman served snacks, Coleman wrote. We were having this menu, four pints, two chocolate of Hagen ice cream, a box of cookies, chocolate chip, a box of cookies, chocolate covered mint, two boxes of Malamars, a back of a bag of Lido's, a jar of Ovaltine, a can of Quick and milk. Andy said, I don't usually have this much chocolate. I'm trying to cut down. (laughs) (laughs) Then he told her about his life. And... (laughs) Uh, and about his dream of hosting a talk show where celebrities only discussed the weather and he showed her his no- his novels <laughs> <laughs> God and the hollering Mangu and the beginnings of the Huey Williams story, which he saw being made into a four-hour epic like Ben-Hur. And he spoke of his influences, Fellini, whose eight and a half he had seen between 30 and 50 times, and Hubert Selby Jr., and Kerouac, and Steve Allen, and Abbott and Costello on television only, (laughs) and of his personal disdain for Tony Clifton. Coleman wrote that he would ask me several times to refrain from even mentioning someone so unsavory as Tony Clifton in this piece and that he was sorry he had ever hired the guy for the Comedy Store gigs. And she wrote that George Shapiro told her that Clifton would be better and very soon advised to consider retiring from show business altogether. But she also wrote very incisively of Andy's work. He manipulates the audience the way the bullfighter would taunt the bull, maddening them with artfully calculated Veronica's until they boo him off the stage then cajoling them back in for the laugh, i.e. the kill in comedy. He is simply not afraid to die. The 10th episode of Taxi was the one they agreed would feature guest actor Tony Clifton, who would play Louis De Palma's car truck brother Nicky from Las Vegas. The episode was titled Brother Rat, but would be changed to a full house for Christmas by the time it was broadcast in December. And by then, all traces of Clifton would be long gone, except in the memories of those who had witnessed the debacle of its genesis. Rehearsals would commence Monday, October 2nd, three weeks after had debuted, to glowing notices from critics who reveled in the program's emotional texture and intelligence, There has never before been a sitcom written with the dramatic depth of this one, Frank Rich declared in Time, adding that Saturday Night Live regular Andy Kaufman brings a saving sweetness to the garage mechanic who speaks his own variety of fractured English. DV (laughs) critics Marvin Kitman enthused in Newsday what an inspiration it was to make Andy Kaufman a regular on a sitcom. It's something to look forward to every Tuesday night. The whole country will be doing their Laka Gravis imitations by next month. After the series premiere, Andy had briefly returned to the road performing a college engagement in Macomb, Illinois. His contract now carried a new rider stipulating that he would must-wrestle female audience members no matter what anyone said or thought, followed by two shows at the Park West Theater in Chicago. While away, he had Michael oversee the purchase of a brand-new Chrysler Cordoba, And this would be his first new car ever, a big sprawling cabin cruiser of a car, long and wide and white with sunroof and blue interiors, including certainly the fine Corinthian leather upholstery. Andy did ask me, though, through his brother, if I felt it was too ostentatious, George reported in the tape diaries of his special client's career progress, which he began privately recording two weeks earlier. It's a nice car, it's sporty, and it's not like driving a Rolls Royce or a Mercedes or a Cadillac. I think he should have a car that he's going to enjoy." He's worked hard, he's paid his dues, he's earned it, so why not, right? Anyway, before Clifton befell Taxi, Andy returned to Paramount Stage 25 to film two more episodes, including his first prominently featured show, Paper Marriage, in which Laka foils immigration officials seeking to deport him by marrying and name only a prostitute. Oh, whom Alex Riger hired to save him. Upon learning there would be no conjugal wedding tonight after the ceremony, Laka laments, Boy, America is a tough town. <laughs> On Thursday, September 28th, scripts of the Brothers Rat Show, which had been written solely to facilitate the Tony Clifton contract, were distributed among the cast, and all of them, fuck, wondered who this Tony Clifton was and why he was playing this role. George had gotten a call later that day. He reported from Taxi Casting director Rhonda Young, who was on the set when the questions first arose. The full cast was sitting around the table, and Judd Hirsch asked, "'Who is Tony Clifton?' And Rhonda said, he's a good actor. He's like Danny DeVito's character. He's a mean and coarse kind of a guy, a real rat. That's why he's got the role. And after the meeting was over, Rhonda went over to nudge Andy and said, hey, I did good, didn't I? As if to say, I covered up pretty good, didn't I? And Andy said to Rhonda, oh no, the real Tony Clifton is going to be there. I only imitated Tony Clifton. I know you came into the comedy store and saw that performance, but I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be away for three weeks. Next week, the real Tony Clifton is going to be here to play that part. And no one would be especially fooled because Ed Weinberger, who had been sworn to secrecy by Shapiro, soon began taking the actors aside, according to Randall Carver, to tell each of them that Andy wasn't going to be in the next episode, but his lounge singer from Las Vegas, who might resemble Andy but wasn't Andy, would be there instead, and we all kind of scratched our heads. Thus, the word spread and concerns simmered. Dan said, don't talk to him if he's Andy. That's what we were told by in. We heard it's Andy, but it isn't Andy. Just play along. I said, you got to be kidding. Everything's always revolving around this guy because he's always making us wait for him. And now you're saying we have to talk to him as somebody else. I was the last one to agree to go along with it. (sighs) Weinberger would... Recall telling them nothing more than a new character actor had been hired. <sighs> <sighs> he would appear in the next show and their patience would be most appreciated. Clifton, meanwhile, required greater measures of obfuscation. (laughs) Now more than ever, Andy could could be nowhere in plain sight. Zamuda arranged to employ the talents of makeup artist Ken Chase, who had done memorable work for the television miniseries Roots, and Chase would design new and appalling facial prosthetics contoured to transform one enigma into another. They went the week before Andy and Bob and Linda Mitchell to Chase's home studio in Tarzana, "'where a cast was made of Andy's head. "'He meditated in his car for one hour "'before he came in to let me take the cast. "'Then the girl would hold his hand "'and count out loud "'while the compression cream was hardening. "'He was very eccentric. "'Foam latex applications were then created "'to approximate ruddy cheeks "'and fleshy jowls and bulbous nose. "'Our intent,' said Chase, "'was to make him as physically obnoxious as possible. "'The cleft in the chin was my idea. "'Something about a cleft on a guy like that "'seemed particularly repulsive.' Chase also supplied ungainly sideburns and a cheap toupee, purposefully obvious, and a big Burt Reynolds mustache, and Linda had gotten the unspeakable salmon-hued embroidered tuxedo with black lapels and piping. That was a fine, she said, having plucked it from the racks of a cheesy men's store on Sunset, and also the turquoise-ruffled shirt which was to be worn over padding to barrel out the gut. <laughs> And so they would report to Chase's home each morning before Clifton and an entourage headed for the set, and the application process would take just over two hours. Before he would let me make him up, he'd blow his nose 20, 30, 40 times. (laughs) Very kooky. And the minute the makeup was completed, his personality changed, and he didn't exist anymore. Because Clifton refused to occupy Andy's dressing room, an enormous Winnebago trailer with fully stocked bar had been procured by Weinberger, and by most accounts, two bona fide call girls, very tall and blonde and accommodating, were separately hired to dawdle with Clifton for the length of the week. Weinberger maintained that they were extras, <laughs> not pros. Also, Linda Mitchell of Burnett would become Clifton's brassy blonde wig secretary, Ginger Sachs. Zamuda would be a suited handler, Bugsy Meyer. They... <laughs> They would arrive at the Paramount Gates in a rented pink Cadillac. Monday was to be the first table reading of the script, in which the brothers de Palma stage a poker game to decide which of them would entertain their mother for the holidays. And that morning, the actors all gathered to begin business. Fucking Christ, dude. Tony Clifton came to work five minutes early, Shapiro reported, and he complained about the other people when they came late which was meant to further divert suspicion away from Andy. And so there they all sat, gawking at him, stifling laughter, stifling irritation, as he hid behind sunglasses and below latex, and they saw that the orangey, spongy makeup stopped at his ears, and it was Conway sitting beside him who first smelled that remarkable B.O. Or was it cologne, or urine, or whiskey, or all? And Clifton lit up his camels and swayed from his pint of Jack Daniels, and they knew Andy would never drink, never drank or smoked, But Clifton actually tried to be congenial and made much reference to Las Vegas and bleated his dialogue as abrasively as possible. But Clifton actually tried to be congenial. Louie, you know, Ma, sometimes she's sad, sometimes she's glad, altering it beyond anything recognizably written on the page. Mostly, however, he smelled really, really awful. He wanted to take a bath after you had been in the room with him. Henner said he was just sickening, always going, Hey, pretty lady, how you doing, baby? He kept coming on to me, which Andy never did. In fact, he chased whatever chickaroonies... <laughs> Materialized before him, offering free trips to Vegas and intimate tours of his Winnebago. <laughs> and it was <laughs> soon eminently clear that Clifton was in no way capable of acting any part other than that. <laughs> and that of himself. His reading was <laughs> terrible, said Weinberger. and the cast was looking at me and I just saw that this was going to be a bitch. Then Tuesday, we had a run through and that was a disaster. This was not acting. He did not mesh, not even remotely. So I realized that I had to get rid of him. It was too early in the life of the show to make an episode he couldn't air. So at the end of the day, I called George and said, look, I have to fire him. He said, well, you know, Andy's going to be devastated. I said, I have no choice, you know. So he said, well, you have to explain it to him. He told me Andy could walk, might leave the show and take both Tony Clifton and Laka with him. So I called Tony in his Winnebago and asked if Andy could come up to the office. And I think it was Andy who then came up and sat on my couch. And I was very tentative because I didn't want to offend or lose Andy. But I said, I have to tell you, Tony Clifton is not an actor. You know, he's a lounge performer. He's just too big for this room. He overpowers this whole episode. He doesn't fit the way we need him to fit. He can't do it. And I was very relieved and surprised when he very quickly said, I agree with you. But what are you going to do? And I said, well, I have to fire him. I'm very careful to say him and not you. And Andy agreed as always. He was very deferential and polite and soft-spoken, but he said, okay, but would you do me a favor? Would you fire him tomorrow because not, but not because he's a bad actor. Could you fire him because he's late and comes in drunk or something? I'll have Tony come in late after lunch and then you fire him in front of everyone. And say you had to hire another actor because he didn't show up. And I said, yes, I could do that. And I saw that this would be theater for him. He was already putting his little script together. Ed Weinberger called me now just to tell me how he's going to fire Tony Clifton. From what I understand, he's going to do this in front of the entire cast and crew tomorrow. And it's going to be part of, let's say, theater of life, which is what Andy loves. They're going to put on a total scene and a reporter from the Los Angeles Times will also be there tomorrow because he had been wanting writing a piece about Andy. This whole situation is one of the most bizarre things I have ever witnessed. Really very bizarre and exciting and interesting and crazy. I'm going to be there tomorrow for the firing. Today is October 4th. It's Wednesday morning. I found out through the casting director, Rhonda Young, that they have already hired an actor to take over Tony Clifton's part today. His name is Richard Forangi, and he was told to report at 230 I think I have the Times reporter who was supposed to interview Tony coming at 2.30, and the rest of the cast is also coming at 2.30, and I'll be coming at 2.30, and I'm coming at 2.30. Ginger Sachs uh, was dispatched to buy gifts for the cast and producers, which would be personally distributed by Clifton and his two young hookers after lunch on Wednesday cars would be attached bearing uncommonly warm sentiments it's a pleasure working with you i'm proud to be a member of the cast of taxi p.s let's all break a leg on friday love tony nick clifton the gifts were little remote controlled battery operated toy dogs that walked and barked and wagged their tails and each actor received one and began to play with his her dog which Ginger had already installed with batteries and they all seemed sort of touched by the gesture and certainly amused except for conaway (laughs) who would take his yapping dog and smash it against the wall. And meanwhile, they would all wonder why there were at least 50 people sitting in the bleachers after lunch since this was just a Wednesday rehearsal and usually only crew and staff members were present for such business routines. Tony Danza, however, knew something was going to happen because he brought a home movie camera with him and told the technicians to light the stage when when Clifton walked in. And George, of course, sensing history, brought his portable tape recorder so that he might decide, describe the action beheld from his seat in the bleachers. And he had urged the LA Times reporter Bill to bring a camera in case any photo op- opportunities arose. And Weinberger, quite aware of his role in the imminent mayhem, had instructed crew members to call his office the minute Clifton arrived on stage 25. It's 2.30 p.m., And I'm sitting up here with Rhonda Young, the famous casting director, and Ginger Sachs, Tony Clifton's secretary assistant. Ginger is a very pretty lady with blonde curly hair and a very sexy green gown, just very classy, someone who that Tony Clifton would approve of, obviously. Tony is now giving out gifts to all the members of the cast. Danny DeVito has a big smile on his face as he is opening up his gift. Judd Hirsch said, something's ticking in there. Randy Carver has a big smile on his face. There are a lot of little stuffed animals running around the reading table now. There's a little Scotty dog, a whole bunch of different dogs. They're adorable. It's absolutely adorable. Tony came out with these two young ladies who were in the trailer with him, a blonde and another blonde. The blondes are completely breaking up. Everyone's breaking up. Tony Danza has a movie camera. He's taking pictures of all... The animals. This is sensational. Clifton is walking around in his peach tuxedo with black velvet collar and blue shirt. He said, Let's get back to work. I have to talk to director Ed about a script change. He just walked on the set. The executive producer and spokesman for the producing team, Tony, just handed Weinberger a very nice gift, and Ed immediately handed it off to the executive in charge of production, Ron Frazier, who put it on the cab in the garage set. Now they are having a conference in the corner of that stage. I came on the stage. <sighs> came on the stage Goodbye.